Today on episode one of MTG Focus, we have special guests, Star City writer and magic theorist Adrian Sullivan and Channel Fireball writer and Hall of Famer Paulo Vitor. We debate whether it's too hard to stay on the Pro Tour train, what are the best qualities to look for when putting together a testing team, and finally, if mulliganing is a lost art. All of this on your MTG Focus. And now, Magic the Gathering news and insight with a pinch of heated debate. Welcome to MTG Focus. Welcome back to MTG Focus. My name is Roberto Gonzalez. I am joined here by my co-host, Brandon Remley. How are you doing, Brandon? I'm good. Beautiful. This is episode one. This is welcome to MTG Focus because we weren't smart enough to come up with something, you know, a little bit more clever for our episode one. I, but I, Honestly, I expect better from you. You, you should expect better from me. I mean, it, it seems... <laughs> uh, what can I say? I'm just not a creative person, okay? I'm not as creative as you, all right? Some people can't. Well, that's a really low level of creative as I am. (laughs) I'll tell you that for sure. All right, very good point. (laughs) But again, uh, MTG Focus, what we're here and what we're about is we want to help you guys to have news. We want to give you some insights. We want to have special guests that can give their insight from the Pro Tour or from Wizards of the Coast, all these different things that you might not be getting in other podcasts or other videos and things like that. Um, what we do here is we kind of separate everything into uh, like, a regular, like a regular show that you would hear on TV or on the radio. We have different segments. Um, our first segment, when we first start and you click onto the podcast, is we try to give you an introduction to our special guests. And our special guests today are Mr. Adrian Sullivan. Are you there? Yes, I am. Beautiful. Thank you, sir. And then also we have Hall of Famer Paulo Vitor. Are you there? Yeah. yeah. Hi, everyone. Excellent. Excellent. So we're going to give you a little introduction uh, in our small talk. From there, we have something called our Weekly Rewind, where we're going to talk about all of the previous decks that are popular so that you know what's out on your radar, that you're not surprised by what you know the next big thing is. And then we also have something called Focus Points, where we're going to talk about different hot-button issues that are in Magic. Sometimes we debate, sometimes we argue, sometimes we all get along, just friendly and shake hands and kumbaya. And But it's a matter of just trying to give you different uh, viewpoints, like as if you were at a tournament talking to your friends. We thought that that would be something that this whole environment, you know, the internet podcast arena really needed was just some more frankness, but also with people who are a little bit more competitive. Um, we are what Wizards of the Coast calls what spikes. Is that what they call it these days? I would say that. And yeah. <laughs> I would say it's really good to, you know, just get out there, get a lot of conversation with your friends or with even with people you don't know who don't may, maybe share the same viewpoints you do on different strategies and magic. And I just think overall it helps you become a better player. Right. And that's why we want to have our special guests. And again, I'm going to start uh, with Mr. Adrian Sullivan. Um, for people who aren't as old, as Brandon and I. Oh, okay. I'm, no, I went there. I'm sorry. Because we old, right? I resemble that <laughs> remark. We are old. Brandon, Adrian, and I are, are what you would call dinosaurs in the magic uh, arena. But Adrian has brought to the table something that a lot of other people can't say that they've done. I mean, this is somebody who Patrick Chapin called one of the founding fathers of magic theory. Um, I mean, this is somebody who 
basically laid the groundwork for strategy, for a lot of control strategies, uh, for building decks that not he didn't always take it to the top, but he was one of the people who actually on the team puts the, some of these decks together that put people into world championships, uh, into making sure that they can live the pro dream. So, Adrian, uh, can you just tell the audience a little bit about a little bit of just about your magic career and what's brought you to where you're at today? Um, sure. I, I don't know exactly how long everyone else has been playing, but uh, I started playing right around, um, it was just before Unlimited. I had some beta cards in my hands, and um, I didn't know what competitive magic was, and I don't know if anyone really, really did, especially in my area, but eventually I found out about the Pro Tour, and it was a thing that I really wanted to get you know, involved with and and be playing on. Um, it took me a little while. In 1997, that was my first Pro Tour. That was Pro Tour Chicago. 1997. And I did really bad. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, a year before that, I had had a deck that I had built get somebody else in the Pro Tour. And a couple of years later, um, the uh, the ancient team Mog Squad, I put two people in the top eight with uh, my standard deck, which was the best performing standard deck from that world's. But most people, I think, that know me from the past, they know me as a deck builder and as a magic theorist. And I've never been one of the top players. That's that's one of those things where um, when you think about really, really great players, um, I, I feel like I've never been in their league as a player. But one of the things I did, especially way back in the day, was you've heard that story about you know coming to the uh, the the fight with a gun or a knife? <laughs> oh yeah. I, I I would try to come with a machine gun, and that was one of the ways that I succeeded back in the day. And a part of that was networking. Um, a million years ago, back in like I want to say 1996 or so, I founded the think tank Cabal Rogue. And between us, we created the first Counter Oath deck, Stompy, The Rock, Junk, Ponza, uh, Squandered Stasis, the first Natural Order deck that was a competitive deck, Secret Force, Five Color Blue, and basically a lot of the stables, uh, staples that you uh, know early Magic from. And none of us were particularly great players. In fact, one of our members, Mike Flores, his nickname was Bad Player Flores. <laughs> oh, that that seems like a really nice name to call somebody. Hey, you bad player, Brandon Remley. That's you. I'm going to name you now. It seems like everybody gets some kind of weird, like, terrible nickname yeah. in their playgroups. <laughs> well, I mean, to be fair, a lot of us were probably not great players. Um, maybe our best player was someone like, say, Mike Donay. The people you might know from this group would be probably Mike Flores, uh, Mike Donay, um, uh Let's see. Goodness gracious. Um, I just drew a complete blank for a moment there, but That's I'll go okay. back and Jamie Wakefield, <laughs> Saul Malka, and a lot of people that um, sometimes like you'll still hear from every once in a while. But what we had was we had better decks than other people, and we parlayed that into better success than people who were much better than us. Well, I mean, how, and, does that, how does that translate today? Because obviously with all of us, like I said, with I mean, when you think about like Sol Maka and Mike Flores, again, Brandon, myself, who have been playing for just, I mean, years and years and years, how have you translated that into success today when, you know, the internet 
you know, allows people to catch up so much faster than back in the day when there was just the dojo or sideboard or, you know, right. those kind of things. Like, what have you well, done now to mean to continue to stay on the pro tour? Well, let's 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 talk about for a second um, things like the dojo and the sideboard. So way back then, you would get information pretty slowly, and today you can pretty much expect information comes nearly immediately in nearly all cases. And when I think about my more recent success, the thing about it is it's pretty small success compared to the um, the truly great successes. You know, um, for example, for Pro Tour Honolulu, that was the last Pro Tour I played in, um, which was just a few months ago. I was one match short of being able to qualify for the next Pro Tour. And um, one of my teammates for that event, he won the event. That was Ari. And the reason that I think he won was he did have a great deck. Um, Steve Rubin's deck was an excellent deck. Now, my group, which was at that event, Team TCG Player, and then you had um, the Stanislav Sifka group, and you had Pantheon. We all had the uh, different versions of the black-blue control deck, which Patrick Chapin, his analysis of that Pro Tour, the black-blue control deck, by the numbers, was the most successful deck from the Pro Tour. So when it comes to success, for me as somebody that um, I think I have a lot of a lot of uh, skill from let's call it a low small scale perspective, but it's not like I'm going to be competing with say someone like Paolo who's on our call right now or Ben Stark or someone else when it comes to skill. But how you can compete when it comes to knowledge is in those first moments of an event having a really great weapon, and then later on in the event, like uh, when I say an event, I should say later on in a format, um, adapting. And I've only recently started having magic success again. And again, this is at like a Grand Prix level. Um, a lot of people would be ecstatic to make the Pro Tour, but and that is, a, that is something to be proud of. But I know that I wanted at that Pro Tour to qualify for the next one. Sure. Um, and I didn't. It was it was one match shy of that. So to me, a lot of people would be excited about that um, as a accomplishment, but it's not enough. Right, and I um, think for, it, for what I want. Yeah, and I mean, I think our listeners um, are kind of in the same boat, where you know they're not satisfied with you know just let's say qualifying, or you know there's always that hunger for a little bit more. Like Brandon is somebody who qualified for the Pro Tour. Because you are also one match short. On yeah, the last one was. from qualifying again, you know, and I guess what you said is, you know, when we talk about f- players like us who have been around a long time, you know, bringing that whole machine gun, <laughs> you know, <laughs> the, let's bring a machine gun, let's bring dynamite, you know, let's bring yeah. the, the atom bomb, you know, to the tournament, um, because there are players out there who have just a natural, just built in skill to this thing. And I guess that kind of leads me into talking a little bit about Paulo um, I, I, for the listeners at home. You may know Paulo, and you may read the you know his articles that he writes, but I want you to put this into perspective for a second, that he's the youngest player to ever reach 300 lifetime pro points. That's 300, not 30, not 200. 300 lifetime pro points, that's an insane number. Uh, not only is he in the Hall of Fame, but you have to remember that the, this is the other number that just kind of blows my mind, is nine pro tour top eights. 
nine. That's that's just an insane level of skill I, and I mean, concentration. Uh, yeah, I I've gotten a ninth place. <laughs> I don't have nine top eights, you know. But um, Paulo, I want you to talk to the audience just a little bit, uh, just about your background because you're. Uh, I think your age, you know, because obviously you're born. Uh, you're you're a little bit. I think seven, eight years uh, younger than us. But you grew up in Magic in a time when the internet was available to you and you know the grand prix system tell us about what it was like to start as a player where you're living and try to make it in a very american-centric pro tour well i started playing when i was eight or nine years old so at that point i didn't really know much of anything i didn't even use the internet uh i'm 28 now so 27 i'm i'm becoming 28 so that was 18 19 years ago uh, then I just went to the store and played with my friends, you know, played at school or whatever. Didn't even think there was any, any, anything else to Magic than that. Uh, I only started playing competitively, I think, internationally in 2003. That was my first PT. And by that point, there was already internet. Uh, so that was actually a great part of why I did well, I think, because I just played Magic almost my entire day. I mean, I went to school. I did all the things that people do. But every time I had free time, I just played Magic, and I played a lot in online leagues. I played in Magic League, for example, which used Apprentice and then Magic Workstation, and Magic Online didn't exist back then, or it wasn't as heavily played. So that was the way I found to to practice in an environment where I didn't know much people who, a lot of people who practice or who wanted to play in those tournaments. So that, that was definitely a big, very big improvement for me. And Adrian mentioned that for him, uh, there was... You know, all you mentioned, the dojo and whatnot. And when I started playing, uh, everything was already there. So it's, it was very rare for me that I went to a tournament feeling like I knew something that nobody else knew. So most of the time, it wasn't about going, you know, having a fantastic deck. It was about having a good version of a good deck and playing that deck very well. I think the internet being so widespread it changed the dynamics of Magic so that it's very rare that someone nowadays, and, you know, 10 years ago, it's the same thing, Someone nowadays goes to a tournament and feels like their deck is incredibly better than every other deck. Mm-hmm. I very rarely see a deck that I hadn't thought of, that we haven't tested at all. So I think this dynamic is really different, and that's definitely shaped what I think is important with Magic and what I chose to invest into, because for me, that wasn't that important. That wasn't the part I was good at, and it wasn't the part that I thought I had to be good at. Sure. So well, I always focus more on playing. Well, I guess the question for us, you know, your resume obviously is just like next level craziness. But what keeps you hungry? You know, I mean, obviously, you know, being in the Hall of Fame, I mean, you've won a pro tour. You know, you've done almost everything somebody can do in Magic. Um, what are you hungry for these days? What actually gets you up to play Magic? I like winning. I mean, I like playing Magic. <laughs> uh, Play, playing Magic is very fun. Uh, I do like it. Sometimes it feels like a job, but a lot of the time it's a job that I really, really like. So that, that part is good. I like the people a lot. So my friends from Magic are people I, wouldn't, I would never have met if it wasn't for Magic. So I'm friends with Americans, with Czechs, with Japanese people. Mm-hmm. And I would, I would never have anything in common with those people if it wasn't for Magic. I would never have known them existed. And uh, the places also, I really like traveling. I like going to different places, and Magic lets me do that. So that that's big part of why I play, but I think winning is the biggest part of it. Uh, I haven't won much lately, but when I do win, it's it's very very good. It, it feels awesome. It's a great feeling, and the fact that there are people out there who uh, 
who who cheer for me, who even know who I am, <laughs> uh, who want to read my articles, you know, people who say hi, ask me to sign stuff, take pictures with them. Uh, that part's truly great, and I don't think I would find that anywhere else. Well, yeah. So I, I like winning a lot, and I like the fact that people respect that. You know, like interacting with those people, my friends, and yeah, it's just the whole combination, I think. Yeah, and it's funny because I have a, a friend in Albuquerque who is, uh, I'm going to call her out, Brittany. Um, she <laughs> loves her Sao Paulo. And I mean, to the, to the, <laughs> the degree that, she, you know, one time we were at a GP, and I told her I was going to get a, get a signed poster of you that she could put over her bed. And her boyfriend was sitting right there, and she, he was like, yeah, yeah, she needs that. That's what she she really could do that. <laughs> so, I mean, it's it's really a, it's a nice thing to be able to travel the world and meet people and have fans. And um, I want to thank you guys for giving everybody a little bit of introduction about yourself. We're going to move into our next segment, which is the Weekly Rewind. Find out what you should be playing this week with the Weekly Rewind. What we do here at MTG Focus is we talk every week just a little bit about what happened the previous week. So, again, what is really, you know, making a difference. I mean, if you want to go buy cards, you know, if you're thinking, hey, this deck all of a sudden got really popular, maybe we should be on the lookout for what cards are going to spike in price. Or if you're thinking maybe PPTQs or Star City Opens, we just want to really kind of dig in a little bit as to what uh, people are playing out there. And uh, the first thing that on my list of things to talk about is this Star City Open that was a modern Star City Open. And Brandon, can you believe that there were, I mean, it was as large as it was. I mean, it was the largest open this year. Well, with nothing else really going on in this in this weekend, if you know, Grand Prix-wise in the States, then I could have seen something like this happening. But just this kind of turnout for Modern is really fantastic. It seems like it's good for the format. Yeah, and I mean, especially on Twitter, you know, Modern's been taking a beating, <laughs> you know, <Yeah>. recently. <laughs> um, but Fabiano, you know, Gerard, for, you know, people who know him close, you know, Mr. Fabiano, you know, but... He G Fabs if you're G, nasty. Yeah, G Fabs if you're nasty. Um, but he actually kind of came up with a deck that wasn't in the metagame. You know, the metagame has been pretty much blue red splinter twin, you know, Abzan, just the you know, Infect, the normal stuff from the Pro yep. Tour. And he came out with a Soul Tide deck that was pretty I mean, I'm looking at three Snapcasters, four Goyf, two Thrag Tusk, uh, three Abrupt Decay, two Cryptic Command, a Golgari Charm. Three mana leaks, two Tassiger, who now is currently neckwear He's for a jewelry. dragon. He's yes. jewelry. Uh, two Ashiok, a Jace. In uh, the sorceries, you're looking at uh, a Compulsive Research, a couple Damnations, four Inquisition, a Maelstrom Pulse, four Serum's Vision, and a Thoughtseize. So it's basically, it's a control deck, you know, but it has Goyf in it. You know, So, I mean, you yeah. can go really, uh, it seems very mid-rangey to me, you know, because sometimes you are going to be the aggro deck with just, you know, that, that Goyf draw, you know, and then sometimes you can just play a Thrag Tusk in... But, I mean, Brandon, on your end, I mean, do you see anything else that, like, would differentiate this in the format? Well, I like seeing some of these different cards that aren't haven't normally been seen in Modern a lot, like the Thrag Tusk, the Ashiox, and things like Jace, because it makes people play against a lot of different things. Uh, the other thing I liked, and I, I watched quite a bit of the coverage on this, is you watched Gerard play this deck quite a few different ways. You mm -hmm. watched him be the aggro beatdown deck, and you watched him come back and be the control deck or somewhere in the middle. Right. And so I think this gives you a lot of options and a lot of flexibility to play the kind of game that you want to play. Well, it kind of goes back to what Adrian was saying about, you know, sometimes when you can just bring a machine gun, you know, to the tournament, but then it also talks about what Paulo was talking about. You know, sometimes, you know, pros usually know everything that's out there, you know, and I think at the Star City tournament, a lot of people had no clue no clue what they were up against in this tournament. So I'm going to start with Paulo. Um, th just 
when we talk about just the theory of a deck, when you look at a deck, somebody with your time, your, your experience, what about this deck made it to be so successful in a huge modern tournament filled with what I would assume is pretty bad matchups? Well, I think the first thing we have to look at when we look at a deck like this is to wonder whether it's not just a bad version of a deck that already exists. Uh, so for this deck to be good, blue has to be better than white. Uh, so blue is offering your Cryptic Command, Mana Leak, um, Ashok, Jace, and some card drawing, and Snapcaster, which is probably the best card. Uh, when White would offer you Siege Rhino, uh, Lingering Souls, and a much better sideboard. Uh, it also has, uh, green also has to be better than white, because you could uh, build an Esper deck, just have you know the same blue and black creatures and also Lingering Souls. So at this point, I don't know whether this is true or not. Uh, I, my inclination is that white is still better than blue, but I, I like the change in uh, in focus because it's not playing discard; it's playing counter magic, and those two types of cards interact very differently depending on what you're playing against. Uh, against if you're playing a combo deck, you would much rather get discarded most of the time than counter spell, because if they discard a card in your hand, then you just don't do anything until you draw that card again. But if they have counter spells, you have to commit to it. Then they counter it, and all your work can be undone. So in this regard, I think. Uh, this deck is very different. It's modern is not a format that's known for counter spells. It's not something people are used to playing against uh, in this current modern format. And this deck can play them. So I think that's that's very interesting and might be a reason why it succeeded. Uh, I also like that it's mid rangey but a little bit on the slower side. So it's said that generally you want to be either uh, a little bit uh, slower than your opponent or much faster. And this deck is just a little bit slower. So it's not slow enough that they will just overrun you, but it's slow enough that you can win the late game. You have cards like Ashok, Jace, Compulsive Research, Damnation, Cryptic Command, uh, Thrag Tusk. You know, all those cards are still mid-rangey, but could give you uh, an advantage in the long game, which I think is where this is trying to go for. And so I think yeah, that's probably why it did well. I, I don't know whether it matches up particularly well against Lingering Souls, which is, I think, the most problematic card, especially with Township, because you do have Jace, so that stops Lingering Souls, but it, that's all it stops. If someone has Lingering Souls and a Township, you're probably not winning the game. There's no Tectonic Edge here, too. So, yeah, I don't know. We'll have to see. I think it's definitely a legitimate deck. You, you, this could become a real deck. It, it doesn't have to be a, a one-time thing, but it would probably have to be tuned a little bit more and play Tessa a little bit more. I do like Creeping Tarpeed a lot, though. When we were playing Esper decks... Uh, for the BT, it was one of the cards that impressed me the most. It's really, really good against Liliana, for example. And I'm disappointed he's only playing two. Uh, I think that it's one of the big drawings towards playing the blue-black deck. So I would, the first change I would make to this deck is just playing four targets. But yeah, I do like the idea. I think it's interesting. Yeah, and I think what uh, when we talk about the theory, you know, about a deck, like you were saying, it has to in order to play this deck. You ha- it has to be better than the Abzan deck because you could just play Abzan, you know. And I think when we talk about what Adrian was talking about earlier, when you know you just kind of bring a deck that maybe people don't have an answer for, or they're not ready for, like you, like you were saying, you know, people aren't used to playing against counter spells. You know, when they see Tarmogoyf, they don't expect counter spell to come behind that. They don't expect Cryptic Command to come behind that. Or if you turn one Inquisition somebody, they don't expect a Mana Leak you know, to come behind that either. Or, you know, Jace and Ashiok. Um, Adrian, on your end, when you look at this list, you know, again, based with your history, what do you think made this deck popular? 
pop, well, I mean, I don't know if it was popular, or but successful. it succeeded. Yeah, yeah, succeeded, certainly. Um, you know, one of the things you had said when you uh, started talking to Paolo is that um, pros often know what is out there. And for the last many pro tours, I've worked with different pro groups. And generally speaking, you know, as a collective group of people who are um, dedicated and interested in the game, you know, we will collectively as a group usually figure out the metagame. And then there's something like this, which is uh, kind of the um, hand grenade in the rock, paper, scissors. And I don't know that this is actually a true hand grenade. I don't know that it actually beats all the things that you would want from a from a true hand grenade in that analogy. But certainly a rogue deck, um, it's not something your opponent will have ever playtested against. There is almost certainly the case that Gerard probably had um, dozens or maybe if he just threw it together at the last minute, at least a handful of games against every popular archetype. But I would be shocked if any opponent of his had prepared against anything that was like this. So that is a huge advantage from a um, strategic standpoint. And then looking at the actual constituent parts... You know, there's only one thing in this deck that I don't like um, in terms of how it's constructed. I'm not a big fan of Ashiok in Modern. I don't, I don't know that it's powerful enough. Yeah, me neither. Um, but, you know, every other card, Abrupt Decay is a mainstay in the various different junk, or if you prefer to call them Abzan lists, that's, that's fine. If you look at every single card, the, the cards are all powerful cards. And I think Ashiok is the most glaring non-powerful card. And, um, you know, I know Gerard has a, has a, a general love of Ashiok. So perhaps that's how that got in there. Or, and because I have to tell you, I've seen this list. I've seen it since, you know, a few days ago that, you know, after he won. But I haven't played it, nor have I played against it. So I can only speak to it from a theoretical standpoint. And... Ashiok is the only card that's a glaring uh, question mark to me. Yeah, and I think when I look at it too, you know, the first thing I said is, so there's two Ashiok and one Jace and no Liliana. And I just, I guess I figured that, you know, when you're playing Black uh, and you're playing Goyf, that, you know, basically Goyf was Liliana's pet. You know, I mean, they just worked hand in hand. They were just, they were married to each other when it comes to, you know, these green-black X builds. But he, I mean, there's no Liliana, you know, to be found at all. And there's not four Tar Pit. So, I mean, it looked to me, you know, that uh, actually Liliana's very good against him. You know, if he's not the one that's able to, you know, manipulate it or even use it to kill certain creatures. Because ultimately, like, if if you play a creature that's bigger than two casting costs, like, all he can do is what? He can, has one Maelstrom Pulse, two Damnation, and that's pretty much the end of that like there's no other way to get it off the board right like how does he kill siege rhino well the other thing that makes it kind of weird is that if he tries to play liliana is it works against his strategy of playing counter magic because if he's trying to use liliana to to discard cards and things like that he may have to skip out on turns of doing that or you know if they don't have creatures if there's cards he really wants to keep in his hand okay adrian what do you think and another thing to note too is that um paolo brought up lingering souls and one of the things, um, this deck does have one Golgari charm, has two damnation, and it has a Maelstrom Pulse. But Liliana, maybe he didn't run Liliana because um, 
Liliana is not good against the Lingering Souls field, sure. and I think Lingering Souls is pretty heavily represented right now. Yeah. Um, yeah. However, I still, uh, you know, it's one of those things where I look at this list and I see a list that is totally Gerard. It's sort of like when you looked at the um, lists from the last Pro Tour and um, you could tell the Abzan list that was the Brian Kibler list. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, it was full of Kibler cards and this is a list full of Fabiano-ness. Yeah, I think that is probably the best way to explain it is that, you know, this is one of those things where somebody has, he's been doing very well with the Soul Tie deck in Standard. And just said, hey, you know what? Maybe I just play this in modern. And people aren't going to really know what I'm on. And I'm good enough to be able to make up for maybe the, the weaknesses that it has um, against maybe like the, the Asban decks that do have Lingering Souls, which, again, is a very difficult card for this to deal with. I mean, a difficult card for this deck to deal with. And um, But before I go any further, I have to make fun of Paulo because, um, Paulo, are you, are you playing on Magic Online right now? No, I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> we just we we were just thinking like, you know, somebody that good. I wonder if they just like can multitask like out of the world, like do a podcast, play magic online, you know, still look good doing it. And uh so I, I just had to ask. I just heard clicking, so I figured you were like, you know, in your attack step right now. So No, uh, I'm not. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's okay. No, um so yeah. Um but this is a deck that if you're gonna be playing in a modern tournament, you can almost guarantee that somebody's going to look at this list because it won, and they're going to try to play this. And I feel like when it's a, a Fabiano deck, you know, when he has his Fabiano cards, I, I might as well call it Sultai Fabiano, right? Like, but it's, <laughs> I mean, literally, there's cards that for the four of us, we look at and go, that doesn't make any sense. Like, why is there Ashiok in this list? You know, but obviously it worked. I think he went something like, he had 15 wins on the weekend, something crazy yeah, like I mean, that. Yeah. His finals win was against Seth Manfield, who's a very tried and uh, tested um, pro tour competitor. Right. So he mm -hmm. didn't just beat bums, you know, like to win the tournament. He had to beat professional players, you know, in, in that arena. But um, again, I think for the people at home listening, just make sure you keep an eye on it. We, we, I think we can all come to agreement that, you know, Lingering Souls is a tough card for him to deal with, and that's probably why he has, like, Knight of Soul Betrayal on the sideboard, you know, to be able to try to fight against it, um, an extra damnation. Uh, Crancy has two Feed the Clans. I mean, so, but that's his, like, favorite card, so he's going to play that, like, no matter what it is, <laughs> right? Like, Feed the Gerard. Um, can, can I make a quick comment yeah, about please. this list? So one of the things I would urge anyone that's interested in picking up this list to do is not make the mistake I see people make endlessly, which is there's either a rogue list like this or a semi-rogue list that's out there, and they just say to themselves, well, I'm going to fix it. Now, I look at this list, and the Ashiok stick out to me. They might be very wrong, but I can tell you what I would do if I were interested in playing this list. I would play it with the Ashioks for a while to see what he was about. Like, that might have been a card that was brilliant in this list. Mm -hmm. And so if you look at a list like this, anytime you look at a rogue or strange list, try it the way the person built it and then make the changes. Because, you know, maybe they saw something that you didn't think of. Right. And that's why they – I mean, obviously, if he's going to spend the money, time, and effort to play in the tournament, you know, he's not going to just be playing cards in the deck just for fun. You know, just like, oh, you know what? 
I, I just want to put Ashok in this list. I don't care if I win or not. You know, I mean, he obviously <laughs> wants to put it in there to be successful. Um, I'm going to switch a little bit over to standard, and I know that um, most of us, you know, uh, have to play standard at some point. You know, if it's on the Pro Tour, or if it's going to be a preliminary PTQ or regional PTQ, whatever it is. Um, but as of late, red-white aggro, Abzan control, I've been pretty much just everywhere. Um, I've been seeing them win these last couple PTQs, that the real PTQs, um, seeing it win the Star City Opens, all that kind of thing. Um, Paulo, uh, when we talk again about theory, not just the list in general, because I think people can read, you know, about deck lists anywhere. But theory-wise, why does a red-white aggro deck such as it is do well in, I mean, when there's just so much control and siege rhinos out there? Well, I think the, there are two possible explanations. One of them is that much, it's much faster than everything else, so they don't even have time to play their control cards. And the other explanation is that it's actually a lot more resilient than it looks like, and I think that's the correct explanation. I think a card like Outpost Siege, for example, uh, made this deck a lot different than it was before. So now you can try to control the game, but you're not going to necessarily win the late game. Like if I have a turn 4 Outpost Siege, for example, and the game goes to turn 20, which is normally what your goal is against Red White, then that's very good for me. So I think cards like that, and you know, some people splash Treasure Cruise just cast Tennessee, and you have cards like, you know, just very powerful cards like so far Grandmaster, you, that deck now has a decent late game. So just normally uh, surviving is your win condition against Red White decks. This is not the case with this deck. Uh, if you survive 20 turns, it doesn't mean you're going to win the game. So I think that's why this deck can excel in a control meta game because it can't actually it can kill you fast, it can kill you quickly, but it doesn't have to. Right. So you you could out control some of the control decks. Well, and it's funny that's you said that too. Yeah, because like that actually happened to me in a PTQ top eight where I had an opponent at like three and I'm playing blue black and I had one card and he resolved an outpost siege and I couldn't kill him and that outpost siege sat there for. Pfft, 15 turns, 10 turns, I don't know, some astronomical <laughs> number. And, of course, at that point, you just... And I I use this term a lot. And Outpost Siege just buries you. I mean, it's like the Undertaker. It comes in, it puts <laughs> you in the ground, closes the coffin, and just, just buries you six feet under. Because, you know, if they're going to continue to get burn, burn, land, those kind of things, and it's hard for the deck to just remove an Outpost Siege. Uh, Adrian, uh, on your end, you know, theory, again, theory-wise, what makes the red-white aggro deck, like, again, just be able to survive in the format? If, let's say, if it didn't have Outpost Siege, is this deck still as dominant? Oh, definitely not. Um, like, I think Paolo exactly analyzed it correctly. Um, you know, let's pretend that you're playing against red-white, and they drop a, car, a creature on two, and then follow up with a Rabble Master or a Hordling Outburst on three. Because it's only playing two colors, this is not an unreasonable draw, you know. So you could be sitting there, and let's say they go Seeker of the Way into Hordling Outburst, and you're facing a lot of damage. So you could be in some real danger, and you have to know that they're running Stoke the Flames. You know, you, they've got these cards that can also provide the reach. But in another draw, you, you know, let's if, if they are the more aggressive deck, and you are kind of you know, falling back on yourself to stop them. And in the middle of all of your resistance, they drop that Outpost Siege. Outpost Siege is not Chandra. You know, Chandra is much easier to get rid of. And 
I, I think that that card has fundamentally changed the way that the deck works. Um, if you pay attention to the things that are going on on the internet, um, Ben Stark wrote about his build, not even calling it red-white aggro. And uh, he was calling it red-white control, which might be a slight overstatement, but whatever the case may be, it can hang in the long game. And it kind of reminds me of decks um, like Sly from the you know late 90s or like Ponza a little bit later, that yeah, they could kill you quick, but they could also hang long. And that resilience that Paolo mentioned, I don't think you can do it without Outpost Siege. Yeah, and I mean, I think it's funny because, you know, when a lot of us looked at the spoiler and we saw Outpost Siege and we said, oh, it's just a bad Chandra. You know, yeah. it's, it's just a bad Chandra. Uh, but it's actually just better than Chandra. You can't Heroes Downfall it. You can't attack it. It only is one red. Uh, I mean, Brandon, you had some experience. You qualified for the regional Pro Tour qualifier um, with red-white. Yes, I, I mean, did. would right now, if you had to choose, even with Abzan Control doing its thing and... and what did it place like six of the eight in GP Memphis? Mm -hmm. Would you still go back to red, white aggro now? Absolutely. Um, I played it the very first weekend when uh, fate reforged was released. So I still wasn't as knowledgeable about how good outpost siege is. And I played some Chandra's in there and there were a couple people who were experimenting with outpost siege. And I immediately saw how much more powerful it was and how many more things you could get out of outpost siege because there were so few ways that people had to deal with them either in their main deck or in their sideboards. And the thing is, I'm going to ask everybody, um, so if the person who's, you know, at home, they're trying to decide what deck that they should play, what machine gun they're going to bring to the tournament, okay? Brandon, with start with you. What deck are you bringing? Are you going to bring red-white aggro to the tournament? I think I'm still going to bring red-white. Um, I think there's a lot to say about having some experience playing with decks, and if you can continue to morph with the format and learn things from what everybody else is doing, then I think you can have some success if you're uh, be able to lean back on your experiences. Okay. And, and Paulo, if your pro tour life depended on it, you know, if, if you had to play a deck and if you lost, you were going to be ugly the next day. Okay. What, what, what <laughs> deck would you play? Probably red, white, if I had to decide right now. Okay. But I think center is very open and there are a lot of possible choices. It really depends what you expect to play against and why you play better. Like I couldn't, you know, I think I would bring red, white, but I couldn't fault anyone for bringing a bunch of different decks. I think that's one of the good things about standard right now. Yeah. I, I think red white's very good, but I don't think it's dominant. Sure, and I, I don't think standard is one of those. It's not a standard where something's broken. You know where? Yeah, exactly. It, so and, you could just play anything you wanted and then try it out. Yeah, and uh, Mr. Sullivan, uh, on your end, I know that you're a fan of control, and but would you consider bringing red white aggro, or would you be on something else? Uh, I would not be on red white. Um, so you brought up the idea of machine guns. And Paolo brought up something much earlier um, about how these days um, the information is out there, which in the machine gun analogy, what that means is almost everybody shows up with machine guns. And it's pretty rare these days that you go to a tournament that's at all competitive that you'll play against someone in the later rounds where their deck isn't a rational, smart, powerful choice. And for me, given that uh, red-white and Abzan Control are the two big decks, um, I would absolutely play what I played at Memphis, which was black-blue control, because I think both of those matchups are pretty heavily favored for black-blue. So if if I gave you 30 seconds in to sell our listeners on blue-black, give us your elevator speech as to why they should be playing blue-black tomorrow. 
Um, well, this, the caveat is if you haven't practiced with it, then you're going to slit your own throat by playing with it. But if you have practiced with it, um, it is incredibly hard to lose to Abzan control at all. Um, that matchup is so good that um, losing it is incredibly unlikely unless your opponent is a, it's wildly better than you and you get unlucky. Um, and then the red-white matchup, once you understand that there are two stages to the red-white matchup, the one is weather the storm, um, which is the survive the rabble master seeker of the way. And then the level two is um, uh, establish a late game, which is to say don't get stoked and don't have outpost siege stick around. Once you know how to navigate those two things, though that matchup is actually very good. Okay. So... I, I, for my viewers and listeners out there, when you look at Adrian Sullivan, you wouldn't think that he was a thug, okay? But <laughs> Adrian is a thug. He came to the show and said, machine guns, slit your throat, you know, hand grenades. Uh, so I didn't know he was from the streets. No, I'm much more afraid of Adrian today <laughs> than I was if, an hour ago. Yeah, if, if I see him on a dark street, mm-mm, that, it, nope, other way. And so you, just to let everybody know, it's going to be Adrian Tupac Sullivan. <laughs> So, so I'm going to move to our next uh, uh, next point, our next segment, whatever we're going to call it. But it's Focus Points, and here we go. This is Focus Points, where we debate topics reasonably like adults who don't always have to be right. Who am I kidding? Let's get the yelling started. All right. So Focus Points for us is going to be uh, a time where we can disagree, where if we wanted to talk some-ish to each other we could now it will happen well there we, there's well, not a if we will well not to our guests because they're fine well maybe well why not uh, well because he's a thug didn't we just have this conversation you try well, to okay get that's shot. true well okay you know, so, so we have a thug and a hall of famer i am clearly outclassed <laughs> yeah, in this situation this, we we need to step our game up so but in focus points what we're going to do is uh we'll have you know our hot topic or hot topics uh of the week and for everybody listening, what we want you to do is actually comment on the podcast and say who you thought came up with the best argument uh, in that area. Uh, what we'll do is the best comment. We, we have prizes. We have all kinds of good things to give away. Um, this week, I believe we're going to be giving away the uh, Mind Seas uh, Commander deck. So, again, what we're going to start with is... Recently, Twitter's been blowing up after Zion Beg. Uh, he questioned like the rationality of a player winning a Pro Tour and then possibly falling off the train as soon as two years later. Now, Martin Juza, Tom Martell, Ari Lax, who obviously was on team with Adrian, um, have all chimed in to say that maintaining gold actually might be a little bit too hard. Um, everybody here on the show today has qualified for the Pro Tour. Some have done better than others. But is it time to say, let, maybe reduce the threshold to stay on the train so that we can keep the pro train realistic or do we just keep it the same way and people are just going to cry about it? Uh, Paulo, what do you think? So I think there's actually two different arguments. The first one is Zane was advocating for the PT winner being qualified for PTs for like five years. I think that's wrong. I don't like that because I think, you know, sure, winning a PT is hard. There are a lot of people playing and a lot of people are very good, but it is possible to spike a PT. And I don't think you should be rewarded for five years for that. So I, I think being a consistent player should reward you more than spiking one tournament. And winning the PT already gives you platinum for two years. So it qualifies you for the World Championship. So I think that's enough for winning the PT. You know, I would much rather do something for second place, which doesn't get nearly as much. 
instead of adding more to first place. Okay. Uh, the second argument is that maintaining gold is too hard. Um, I think, actually, Arilax's point was not that maintaining it was too hard, was it getting it from zero was hard. And I think in that regard, I agree with him. I think, you know, if you're a player and you won a PTQ for the second PT of the year, it's very hard to get gold already. Um, because PT points are worth so much. So even, you know, for me, I, I played in all PTs uh, in, in a year, and I went to the World Championship, and I still didn't make gold. So it would be foolish for me to say it's easy, I didn't even make it. <laughs> but again, it's not supposed to be easy. So it's a really hard line to draw. Sure. Uh, I think what, what you could do, there are two things you could do. One of them is just lower the threshold. Uh, so instead of needing you know, 35 points for gold, you need 30. Uh, that's one thing they could do, but it would just have more people being gold. And you have to balance that with you know, maybe that becomes worse for people who are gold because they have to reduce the benefits. Another thing, and the thing that I think they should do, is to just balance the points a little bit more. Because right now, uh, doing well in a PT is overwhelmingly better than doing well at anything else. So I got second in Team GP uh, a couple of months ago. I got five points. Uh, and then someone got you know, top 16 the PT, and I got 15. So I had to get second in three different GPs to make up for a PT top 16. Um, the, the the threshold for, for getting a lot of points in a PT is really low right now. So if you don't do well in PTs, your GP finishes almost don't matter. They, they, they do. Some people have excellent GP finishes. But for me, for example, I can't play 20 of them. So I think, should I go to one GP? Probably not, because either I spike the PT and then I'm going to be gold no matter what, or I do badly at the PT and then it doesn't matter how well I do in GPs. So I would like to see... Uh, you know, some redistribution of points in the PT, where I think spiking gives you too many points. So I think there are records that should give you, you know, more or less points. You can still give the same amount of points, but distribute them better. Because there's, it's not much different to finish 15th or 17th, but the difference in points could be huge. And I think uh, they should probably try to give out more GP points as opposed to PT points, which probably wouldn't even be good for me because I don't go to many GPs, but I think I think right now GPs are not don't matter enough for for staying gold or for reaching gold. Uh, at least they don't matter as much as they should. I think they should matter a little bit more, and spiking a PT should matter a little bit less. Yeah, and I think you know when we when we talk about pro points, you know we want to compare it to sports. And I'm again, I I totally you know see where you're coming from. I guess my my disagreement on that is if I look at a sport like golf. If I look at a sport like tennis, uh, where it's an individual sport, you're you know you have smaller tournaments that feed into bigger tournaments like the Masters, things like that. I mean, and if we compare that to say you know if the Masters is our world's championships and you know the other tournaments are our pro tours, I mean Grand Prix Grand Prix actually don't matter. I mean Grand Prix are tournaments that are largely consisted of people who are not pros, um, whereas the pro tour is you know obviously it's a smaller tournament. It's also going to be filled with you know professional level players. So it would, in my mind, it would seem that uh, being able to spike a pro tour, top sixteen a pro tour, is going to be significantly harder than say top eighting or top sixteening a, a GP or even now. Granted, when I got ninth at the pro tour and I get fifteen pro points, you know you still have to like win a GP, you know get second and then still do a little bit more or something like that in order to you know qualify as if you've got a top 16 in the pro tour that may be a little bit out of whack 
but I still think that, I mean, the Pro Tour is what it is. These, this is the big tournament. This is the big show. This is where you have to do well if you want to be a professional, whereas a GP is the equivalent of like a regional golf tournament that's not televised, you know, who cares? You know, if you win that tournament, you know, you're not going to win a lot of money. It's, it's just there to, you know, maybe advertise who you are. But Adrian, on your end, as somebody who, you know, I, I don't know how often you've been gold on the Pro Tour, but what are your thoughts about the idea of being able to stay qualified through Pro Points? Is it, is it too hard now? Um, you know, I, I think it might be ever so slightly too hard. Um, I think what um, uh, Paolo said about um, Zaim's uh, claim about a five-year qualification for the Pro Tour champion, I agree. That's a little bit too much. You know, we can we can think about whether that should be worth, you know, two years or however many. Um, but I think what I'm more concerned about is, is this. You know, um, somebody who gets top 16 at a Pro Tour – and so they qualify for the next pro tour because they've got their 11 wins and they do fairly okay at some grand prix um maybe they get like let's say eighth at a grand prix and then some other reasonable finishes that are not in the top 8 and they top 32 at the next pro tour they might not be qualified for the pro tour after that and um you know that's that's kind of a, a shame because I think that that's the level I'm more concerned about is that person that is, you know, they get ninth, they're queued for the Pro Tour, they get, a, like, say, eighth at the Grand Prix, so they're not getting a new invite. They're, it's the same Pro Tour invite. And then they get a great finish, but it's just outside of the range of the auto invite via an 11 um, match wins. That's That seems like there there's maybe it's slightly too hard, but... There is a question that is being balanced within Wizards that I understand, which is the more invites you give, the bigger the event becomes, the more unwieldy it is to run. So they have to draw their lines somewhere. I feel like the lines they've drawn on the lower ends are maybe ever so slightly harsh, and um, I'm not certain if it can't be shifted in a way which would help out, you know, say one of my friends, um, you know, Matt Severa, who is a Madison player who's had some really, you know, great pro tour finishes, but you know what? He didn't make those thresholds of the 11 wins. He's got that grand prix top eight from this last season. Um, the same, the same one that Paolo was in at that team event. And, you know, he's going pro tour to pro tour. And he's one of the most talented players I've ever seen. You know, he's as good as a great deal of the gold pros that I know. So it's a shame that he's skirting that edge. And making policy, though, for this, it's a challenge. You know, you can't say our policy is people who seem pretty good get to be on the pro tour because that's not a policy. Right, yeah. And I think the other thing, too, from from me is when you talk about... So both of you disagree saying, look, you know, Platinum should stay where it is. They shouldn't get more. I firmly disagree with that. I mean, I, I look at winning a tournament, winning the Pro Tour. We have to promote our stars. I mean, we just have to. They have to be out there. They have to be... I mean, granted, I think that, you know, of all the things that Wizards does well, this is not one of them. I don't believe that they actually promote our top players the way that they should. They don't promote... 
uh, like the top 25, you know, in such a manner that these people seem like, you know, that they are like the Michael Jordan of their sport. You know, those narratives aren't there during the pro tour uh, where you're doing maybe behind the scenes, learning more about them. The kind of things that you see when you hear about a Serena Williams, you know, when you hear a baseball game and you hear about, you know, a Troy Tulowitzki or these people who are even in small markets but are very good. And Brandon and I are, are big sports people. And I feel like if you have somebody who's platinum, let's say they're qualified two years at platinum. Let's say they're qualified another two years at gold. And then they have one silver. Um, I understand that my, uh, that I don't see that adding a lot of extra you know, uh, weight to the pro tour. And it also shows that we have a commitment to keeping our best players on the tour. And if, you know, obviously, you know, if we can't promote our stars, if this is a starless sport, it it will never be a sport. You have to have stars. I, I don't know that it's not a starless sport. I mean, you know, I can speak to the people that have come up to me asking me for autographs. I'm sure that, you know, Paolo has a, a, you know, a, a degree more of that than I've ever received. But I think the thing is, is that um, we don't know exactly because we're obviously not privy to this, how much is being given to Wizards of the Coast by Hasbro to be able to do this portion of things. I agree that there needs to be more um, support for the idea of building stars when it comes to narratives. But when it comes down to it, what we don't know is what dollar amount they've been assigned to do this. Sure, but I mean, I, I understand that we don't know the budget, and we're never going to know the budget. But if we're talking about just the idea of if we want to, as Magic players, obviously the more money that gets funneled into this, the more we can take it seriously. Um, and you know, Paulo is a very good example of somebody who's done very well, made a grip of money, <laughs> you know, uh, playing Magic: The Gathering more than all of us have dreamt about. But you know. Does it make a lot of sense that somebody like Paulo, who you know has won a pro tour, has put up these huge events, uh, is somebody that could fall off of the pro tour, you know, because he has maybe a bad year? Um, but he, but, well, I mean, he's a bad example. But Try besides Hall pro, of Fame, that's not in the Hall of but, Fame. No, besides Hall, I mean, I guess it's, a, <laughs> I, I, I guess if we have to take it for a grain of you know grain of salt that we know he's a Hall of Famer, he's qualified. But like, if he wasn't a Hall of Famer, isn't there a point where we say, look? If you're a platinum pro, now granted, maybe winning a pro tour doesn't get you platinum, whatever. If But if you're a platinum pro, that the highest level pro, the, the Tiger Woods, the Roy McIlroy, the Serena Williams, you know, uh, the Joker from in poker, in the poker, not Joker in poker, the Joker in tennis. Um, if you're those kind of people, aren't, if we want to get viewership to Twitter, if, or to, uh, to Twitch, excuse me and to get higher Twitter followers, do those kind of things, to make this game as popular as it can from the pros, because that's the point of the, having pros, is to sell product. Don't we need those people consistently on the pro tour without fault? Well, uh, I, I agree with you to a point, but I think in Magic it's really hard to say who those people are. Like in, in tennis, uh, you see Serena Williams, it's obvious that she's the best because she wins everything. But in, in Magic, who wins everything? You know, so take the guy who won the last PT, like Antonio Del Moral Leon. I had no idea who he was before that. I've never seen him play. I don't know if he's good or bad. I don't know if he's going to win every tournament from now on, like Jeremy Desani did, or if he's just never going to win a tournament again. And is is the guy, like, automatically a star because he won the PT? Uh, should, should he be representing Magic for five years well, uh, at the top of the game if he never has a good result again? I I don't think... 
he should be. You know, I think this is, Magic is a game that he has chance in it, and it's possible that Antonio is really good, and it's possible that he becomes that star. But I don't think you can make him that star just because he won the PT. You know, he already has, he's already qualified for everything for two years. He's playing the World Championship. Uh, that they're already trying to make him a star. But if they can make him a star with that, then he probably shouldn't have been a star to begin with, I think. So maybe I'm being a little bit harsh because things were very, you know, things happened for me in a way that was convenient for me. And and that leads me to thinking that. But, you know, I I had two bad years right now. I could have had two bad years 10 years ago. So I would just probably have stopped playing because I would have, you know, done very well in a couple of tournaments, then done badly for two straight years and I would never have qualified again. Uh, and the way things broke down for me was was not like that. It was the opposite. So I, I was very lucky that I did badly in the years in which it matters way less because I'm already in the Hall of Fame. But I think uh, it's very hard to force someone into being a magic star. You need magic has a lot of chance in it. You need an overwhelming amount of results. I think to base on results alone, be considered a star. So speaking of trying to get to being that kind of star. Um, there's a lot of secrets in putting together a strong team, and I think that's a very essential to anyone becoming successful on the Pro Tour is being able to have a good team. Uh, I know both of you have some great experiences on the teams that you've been in, but what kind of advice can you guys give to some of us who don't have some of those resources to uh, find a great team and put something together to help ourselves get to that next level? I think the most important thing is that there are two things that I think are very important. The first one is that you're friends with the people. Uh, you just cannot have a team where you don't like your teammates. It's just not going to work. It's not going to be pleasant. It's going to feel like a chore. It, it has to be pleasant for you to be around those people. Uh, the second thing is that everyone has to have the same ambition, I think. It doesn't have to be exactly the same, but the same degree of ambition. So, for example, if, if I have a team where, say, I'm at home and I qualify for the PT, and then I'm tasking with three of my friends who are not qualified for the PT, you know, as much as they like me, as much as I like them, they'll never be as invested as I am in that tournament. So, you know, this is something that you can do. If you can't find people. Uh-oh, did we lose Paulo? We may have lost Paulo. I think, um, we, I think we lost Paulo. I am going to, um, I guess, say some things until he comes back. No, Hopefully we'll it. get him back yep. shortly. Um, I agree with him about having similar goals. You know, one of the things that you can do if you are not um, attached to, you know, well-known people, let's say you're not privileged enough, which is most of people that play this game, to have connections to people that are, you know, well-known pros or semi-pros. Your, I think your next alternative is to try to, you know, reach out to some people that are, um, you know, the the workhorses of the Pro Tour and offer yourself as a possible resource to them if you if you happen to be qualified for the Pro Tour. But another option is to actually build up your own local community as best as you can. You know, if you have people that care about your results and they're invested in you, it's not going to be as good as having, you know, the... Um, having pro tour champions on your team, but it's going to be better than going it alone. And so what he was saying about having those friendships, once you are at, you know, big events, don't try to build up what I would call, um, fake friendships, friendships of convenience. 
you know, no one really enjoys <laughs> being in someone's presence where they feel like they're being used. But if you make a genuine connection with somebody, you know, reach out to that person and see about whether or not you can work with them at some point and recognize that if they're more established than you, well, you know, they are going to have more clout and more to say about anything that you might be working on. Yeah. And I think that's like really uh, where I come from. You know, um, you know, I tested with a couple of my friends who were qualified for the pro tour. Um, I got ninth. Um, and at that pro tour, you know, I befriended Melissa Tora, um, talked to Raf, you know, Levy, you know, and I didn't immediately ask if I could test with them, but it was just something that we were friends. And then obviously with me being qualified again, you know, I got invited to work with a team, which was team revolution, um, of, you know, top eight performers, people who, um, are way, way, way better than I am. Um, but that's not something that I can tell somebody to go out and repeat, you know, Hey, go out, do this well at the pro tour. And then just happen to befriend somebody who, who knows somebody else who happens to have a spot on the team. Um, but ultimately, you know, I can't agree more with what you guys are saying. It's, you know, you have to be able to be friends. You have to be able to talk to each other realistically, you know? Yeah. Well, I mean, one of the things about those people who, um, and I'm sure any competitive player has had this experience. Um, and when I say competitive, that can be competitive at a local level or at a national level or at an international level, like the pro tour, you've all experienced someone who is buddy buddying up to you but you feel like they're trying to get something. And I guess when um, I feel like real connections happen over real stuff, you know, Um, like I can't remember when we met Roberto, but I feel like it was in like 98 or some long time ago. Oh yeah. And uh, you know what? You are somebody that like, you made a positive impression because you were charming and fun. <laughs> you know? Don't be trying to kiss up also, to me. Also, you were you were a smart guy, you know, and and those are things that when we saw each other in Hawaii, um, we hadn't seen each other probably since Grand Prix Phoenix, nineteen ninety nine. Easy, easily. Yeah, I think that was the last time I'd seen you, but it was exciting to see you because you know what. You were a real human being, and you weren't somebody where I've experienced this so many times before. You weren't somebody who ever made me feel like you were trying to get something out of me, you know. And um, to be to be clear, let's pretend that you um, are trying to get hooked up for the pro tour. People can tell when you're trying to use them, and that's 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 the place where you don't want to be. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Um, now, is did we get Paulo back? Because I hear typing again. Hi, I think. Can you hear me? <laughs> yes, we, we can. We, we okay, can hear you. Sorry about that. I don't know what happened. No, it's okay. So just, um, you know, I know you were, were in the middle of something, but the last thing we heard was, um, you know, making sure that everybody had the same kind of uh, goals. Yeah, and, and by that, I don't mean necessarily that everyone has to be qualified for the PT. I think it's possible that everyone is qualified for the PT, but people don't want the same things. Some people want to have fun. Some people are just happy being there. Some people want to win the tournament. And when you have people with different mindsets, it, it becomes awkward. Like, we had that situation in Channel Horrible. Uh, there, were, there have been a couple of tournaments uh, for which, you know, the last tournament of the season, in, some people are already qualified for everything, so they don't need to do well. And some people are already dead, so they can't, they can't win anything, so they also don't need to do well. And some people need to finish, like, a top 16. 
So those people have to do well. But then the, the mood is really different. You know, people will be like, oh, hey, can you play me this matchup with Cyborg? And people who are already qualified or who, who you know, don't, don't need any results for any reason, they'll be like, no, I just want to watch basketball right now. <laughs> that happens a lot on our team, too. And, and stuff like that. And, you know, you'd be like, oh, can you play me, you know, 100 games in this matchup? And people will be like, this matchup's actually really boring. I don't want to play it. And that's very valid. Uh, like, I don't think you should force someone to play a matchup that they hate and really don't want to play playing proxy cards or whatever if they don't care about the result. But you do. So you, it, I think it's unfair to both people if those two people are on the same team and want vastly different things from an event. So I think tasking goes best when you're friends with the people and when everyone has the same level of commitment towards the event. Now, Brandon, you had an experience. So Brandon's going to be the one person uh, out of the four of us who really hasn't found a home uh, on a team. And, you know, one of the times, you know, the team was kind of, I would say, what, scatterbrained is probably the best word? Yeah, I wanted to say being in Albuquerque, it's hard. You know, we don't have very many PTQs. I mean, our closest ones are six hours in any direction that we go. So I was able to kind of get hooked up with some people that I found out, one in Denver, and we tried to put some things together. And, you know, it's kind of really disjointed, and, um, you know, we didn't have that friendship uh, to start with. And I really think that's really important for any magic uh, for any group and, and just in general, because then you guys, you have that connection that Paula was talking about where, uh, you know, you genuinely feel like people are going for the same kind of thing. And uh, I, I think that's really important. And in our testing uh, group, we ended up, you know, I did a lot of limited testing. So that's kind of more of what my specialty is. And I was able to come up with a really good plan on my own because I was able to do magic online because I was, you know, six hours from Denver anyway and I could figure that stuff out. And, uh, you know, I kind of counted a little bit more on other some of those other people to look at some standard things. And it was really hard to, you know, get the team together because we were all in different places. We were all had different goals. And everyone, you know, there really just wasn't a plan. So basically what you're saying is that you lived what we just told you not to live. Yes, that was the exact opposite of trying to do what you're supposed to. Okay, so I, I just want to kind of wrap this up. Is So if you're listening at home and you're putting a team together, the idea is that you want to be friends so that you guys can talk frank with each other, you can be honest, you have a connection. It's not awkward like being on a bad blind date. We want to make sure that everybody has rem- uh, about the same you know, goal, you know, the same intensity that when it comes to it. Because I can remember many times where, you know, like Brad who is like a magic fiend is like, Hey, Birdo, can we test this matchup 50 times with sideboard? And then, you know, pretend like you don't know that my sideboard is, you know, and sometimes it's like 11 PM and I'm not that guy anymore, you know, to stay up till <laughs> two o'clock in the morning. We're, we're too old. We can't yeah, handle it no more. We old, we're not thugs. So, um, but <laughs> <laughs> if, you know, but there's, there's always those kind of people who have high energy and things like that. And, you know, and I don't want to, uh, you know, bring them down either. So, um, but again, want to be friends, want to make sure you have roughly about the same, you know, goals, the same passions. Um, and I think for anybody else who's listening is it, you have to just kind of reach out, you know, and it's not about when you first qualify. It's about before that. It's about just being friendly, being nice, you know, and then sometimes, you know, maybe you get qualified and you can connect. I didn't, I didn't befriend Melissa because I was hoping to get an in, you know, I didn't befriend Adrian, you know, years and years ago to get an in. It's just a matter of, you know, hey, let's just be friends because that's what magic's about, right? Ultimately is that we build a lot of these friendships, travel the world, and occasionally make some money. So 
Um, but last but not least, um, in my experience, you know, some of the hardest decisions that I've ever had to make in high-level magic tournaments, you know, like the Pro Tour or GPs, um, have been with mulliganing. Um, through my career, as I've gotten better at mulliganing, which I, I guess in my definition, better at mulliganing, um, I've had much better results. Um, is mulliganing a lost art? And what should you be looking at, like at a macro level, when it comes to keeping a hand? And I'm going to ask Paulo first, because I know he's going to be having a series uh, that he's going to start writing about it. Tell me a little bit about what you think on this. So I think mulligans are a super interesting part of magic because there is sometimes no right or wrong. Like if you if you have if you, if you have ten pro players in a room talking about a play, I would expect that after fifteen minutes, everyone's convinced each other that that play is correct, and you know all ten will leave the room with you know an explanation of why they should make that play. With mulligans, that's not going to be the case. You can sit there arguing for three hours, and you're still going to have five people who want to keep it and five people who want a mulligan. So this is a really really hard thing to do properly. In in many you know, of the cases, it doesn't matter how good you are, it doesn't matter how experienced you are. Because a lot of it is just personal. You, you can't help your personal experiences factoring into that. Uh, but I think that on a macro level, you, the thing you should look for uh, two things. First is, can this hand win the game? Uh, if, you, if you can't imagine the hand winning the game, then don't keep it. And the second is, uh, is does this hand give me a higher chance of winning the game than a six-card hand? Uh, and a lot of people don't think about that. They think about mulliganing in the abstract. They'll be like, hey, would you keep this hand and then give me a hand? I'm like, well, I don't know. I don't know what you're playing, what you're playing against. Uh, I don't know how good your hand has to be for you to win. So sometimes uh, people mulligan hands that hoping for a hand that that can't give them. So say you're playing a very, very slow sealed deck, and you have only one card that costs three in your deck. Everything else costs four or more. You can't mulligan every hand that doesn't have that card. It's just not reasonable. Uh, but if you have a deck that, that's very aggro and it's supposed to play a 2-drop and a 3-drop and it has a bunch of 2-drops, a bunch of 3-drops, then you probably cannot keep a hand without those. So uh, it's, it's all about knowing what your deck can do for you and what your deck has to do for you. So it, like one of the hands, I already wrote uh, one of the columns about the Skipper Mulligany, and one of the hands was 6 lands and Stony Silence on the play against Affinity. And my reasoning is, if you think you can deck... If you think your deck cannot beat Affinity, then you should keep that hand because it has the best card in it and the card might win the game single-handedly. But if you think your deck has game against Affinity, you don't need to spike that win, then you should probably mulligan that because this run is really hisky. So I think, yeah, I think, I think that's the two things that matter the most. It's knowing what your deck can do and knowing what it needs to do. And then if it falls flat, you mulligan, and if it's enough, you keep. Do you think, and I, I guess the way... I'm going to try to present this is it seems to me that players are much, uh, much smarter when it comes to making decisions on mulligan when it comes to limited, like they can look at their, they look at their hand, you know, all the things you said, Hey, can I win with this hand? Can I do that? Can I do this? But in standard or in modern, sometimes people just like look at their hand and they just like remember every crazy draw that they've ever had or every line of play that just worked out just perfectly. And they just tend to mulligan less when it comes to, standard and when it comes or just constructive formats in general um adrian in in your experience do you see any of that um i think that you might be correct about people's mulliganing when it comes to standard in that way or i should say constructed in general and i think a part of what it boils down to is people look at a hand and they say to themselves well this has the good cards and i've got sufficient mana so i'm good and they 
aren't being as critical because perhaps where in limited um, you are always in new territory, so you you are maybe being a little more critical. In constructed, I think that you might be just you know you're use, you've got your machine gun in your hand. We're gonna we're gonna be Omar walking here and stuff, <laughs> but you know, you've got your machine gun in your hands, and you're like. Yeah, it's, you know, loaded and, uh, you know, the safety's off. I'm good to go. <laughs> and, and that's not necessarily the right thing. You know, let's pretend it's game two and you're playing Abzan Control versus Red White. And, you know, you have a um, reasonable mana selection and you've got a Siege Rhino. And you're like, sounds good. Let's do it. And, <laughs> you know, you find yourself run over by a goblin rabble master that survives your removal because of a valorous stance and then they valorous stance your rhino you know like stuff happens because i think people forget they're not the only ones holding a machine gun mm -hmm. and in limited not everyone has that kind of power advantage you know you have whatever you have from your pool but in Constructed, I think the thing people forget is they're not the only one that has a powerful weapon in their hand. So what's your advice for, again, macro-level advice on whether or not you should be keeping a hand or shipping it back? Well, don't follow Gerard Fabiano's advice about mulliganing, <laughs> which is don't do it. <laughs> um, but no, in, in all seriousness, um, I think that you just need to look for a narrative. You know, um, what is the story of your hand? What has to happen for your hand in this matchup to work? And if you don't know what the matchup is, let's pretend you're sitting blind against an opponent. You know, imagine what happens in different scenarios. And one of the things I think people fail at a lot with mulliganing is actually their bad matchups. Um, the worse your matchup is, I'm a big proponent of taking riskier mulligan choices because let's pretend for the sake of argument, you're playing in a matchup where game one, you expect that they're going to win a horrible amount of games, like 80%, which is one of those numbers people throw out, but it's usually unheard of to have, have those numbers. You know, it's, it's pretty horrible when you're at that point. Those are the matchups where you should feel free to take riskier chances because you know what? Odds are you're going to lose regardless. On the other hand, you know, when it comes to the matchups that are closer, you know, the matchups that are closer to 50%, these are the ones I think you have to be far more conservative about. And a lot of this just has to go with just simple game theory where when it comes down to it, a um, bad result on a, on a risky mulligan punishes you much more in a uh, conservative situation than it would in one where you had to get lucky anyway, you know? And weighing those things is very easy to get wrong. Yeah, and I think the just kind of wrapping all that up is, you know, and I'll ask Brandon as well, but on my end, my advice to anybody when you're looking at a mulliganed hand is, you know, I, I've always first first thing I look at is say, hey, it, how many cards do I really have in my hand? And what I mean by that is if I have a seven card hand and I have two mana 
and I've got some, I've got one or two five drops. You know, what if I have one that's an off color? Um, that's I've always treated it as not as not even a card, and then I treat it as a six card hand. I say, okay, is this six card hand going to be better or worse than the normal six card hand that comes out of this deck? And standard, I find myself as I like I said, I've gotten I I think better over the years. You know, when I do that, I go, okay, yeah, this six card hand is not a six card hand I would even keep, so I have to mulligan, knowing that the seventh card isn't something that's castable. Uh, Brandon, on your end. Do you find yourself doing that as well? I know that we kind of, because we've been friends for so long and we've lived together and, you know, it's, you've been my best man at my wedding. Sometimes we can kind of think the same. What about you? I mean, is that something that you find yourself doing as well? One of the things that I really find is that there are different skill sets to mulliganing, especially when it comes to being limited or constructed. Uh, for the limited side, I really try to look at the thing where you're talking about how many cards can I actually play? How reasonable is it for me to play the cards in my hand? And then if I get to the spot where I think I want to be with that hand, can that hand win me the game? Um, in a constructed sense, uh, I tend to look at things like if if I have this hand, is this going to be good enough to be or to have a good game or to even win a match against what I'm playing against? And like I know I had that kind of situation come up at the Pro Tour where I had a hand uh, where I was playing Abzan and I had a Scavenging Ooze, a Lingering Souls, a Rhino, three lands, and I want to say a path to exile. And I knew my opponent was playing scape shift and I knew that hand was just near unkeepable because I can't interact with them at all. And those kind of things make me, uh, you know, judge my mulliganing decisions differently, really depending on what I'm playing and not just thinking, Oh, what can my deck do? I have to think about what can my opponent's deck do also. Yeah. And I think that's one of the things that I'm taking from this whole, uh, argument. (laughs) I think we all agree is that we really have to know what the deck does. You know, if if you're not playtesting with the deck, you're going to slit your own wrists, you know, because you're not going to know. Or your throat. Or your throat. Adrian's around. Adrian's around you, though. He might cut you in the back. So uh, he might shoot you. So, but. Omar be walking. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Break your ankles, son. Um, But, you know, the thing is, you have to know your deck. And the best mulligan advice I think any of us can give is if you know your deck in and out, you should be able to make very, I don't want to say easy. But much easier mulligan decisions because just you, better informed decisions. Yeah, you know the narrative, and I, that goes back to what Paul and Adrian both said: is what when we sculpt this game with this hand, are do you think you're going to win? You know, do you think you're going to be in a good position mid game? And I think that that is probably the best advice I can give anybody um, when they're at any level is don't forget to sculpt that game beforehand, and don't let's play these turns out in our head. Uh, give yourself a deep breath, thirty seconds. Think about that, you know, before you keep it. So, but it looks like we're out of time. Um, I do want to thank Adrian Sullivan, the gangster of all gangsters, the OG, triple OG. Oh, Jesus. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, tr- trust me, it's com- I- I'm, don't don't let me see you on the streets. I'm going to tell everybody, you know, he don't play. So, but thank you, Adrian, for coming on. I appreciate it. Um, Paulo, I-, I really appreciate you coming on as well. Um, and again, just stay beautiful for the ladies, you know, because yeah. <laughs> I'll, I'll try. <laughs> I still I have a question though. So, okay. how what playmat do you think would sell better if we could make Apollo playmat and put it up next to the Kibler playmat? 
I mean, that's I mean, that's simple. Probably Kibler. Probably Kibler. <laughs> Man, that's, yeah, I mean, I don't know. Do I, don't know. I know. I know some girls who have the the opinion that Paulo would definitely be the top. Well, I, I think that Paulo doesn't have as much out there, so maybe it's like a limited edition thing. Yeah. So like. You know, but uh, we'll see when we get the new cover of GQ. When next time he wins the Pro Tour, you know he'll he'll be on the cover. But again, thank you, Paula, for showing up. Uh, let me give a big thanks, thanks a out to uh, my producer, Miss Erica Gonzalez, who you know only yells at us every so often, but you can't hear us. And then uh, Brandon, uh, real quick, let people know how they can get in touch with you. Uh, well, I just recently got onto Twitter. Old and, man. Yeah, I know, really old. <laughs> I, I was really, I was really against Twitter for a long time. I just used to call everyone a bunch of twidiots if they had Twitter accounts. Old but man, uh, get off my lawn. Now it's now I'm I'm I've joined the club, and my Twitter is real brem, real b r e m, not bm, not bm, not okay. bowel movements. We're not talking <laughs> about that here. Okay. Uh, or on Facebook, you can find me Brandon Remley, uh, or you can find me through the podcast. Uh, Adrian, can you tell people how to reach you as well? Sure. On Twitter, it's at Adrian L. Sullivan. And on Facebook, same thing. That's uh, Facebook.com slash Adrian L. Sullivan. And Paulo, how do we get a hold of you? So on Twitter, I'm PVDDR. So for Paulo Vitor de la Rosa. And you can find me on Channel for Ball every week. Actually, probably two or three times a week from now on. Oh, man, dude. Two th- I'm, I'm going to check it out right now. Let me go to Channel Fireball. That's yeah. a good thing to mention. Yeah, StarCityGames.com for me every week. So. Yeah. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Hey, don't don't go at it now. I mean, it's okay. <laughs> we won't start the wars with the gangster. Yeah, over exactly. And, I, you know, both, both those websites have been very good to me, um, letting me write for Star City, letting me write for Channel Fireball at, at a point in my career. Um, you can find me on Facebook, uh, Roberto Gonzalez. And on Twitter, it's the real Rob AJG. Thank you guys for tuning in, and we will do our best to see you next week. All right. Thanks, guys. Thank, Thank you. you. Please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash mtgfocus, and follow us on Twitter at mtgfocus. See you next week.